Man, I'm so um, so touched by the choir and the band and all of them and just for leading us to see the depth of Christmas, that it's more than uh, the sentimental value of what uh, the media puts on things. Um, my wife and my kids, they love this time of year to watch Hallmark movies, and I, my, my wife kind of got on to me this morning for using those Hallmark references, but, uh, but the reality is it's not about what Hallmark can put out. Um, they, they can't produce anything that touches what God has done. Uh, that, that's just the beauty of it. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the beauty of Christmas. Well, let me invite you to open this morning to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And uh, you've got to be careful what you say to the pastor. And some of you are a little nervous right now. But as I was in the sound booth putting my microphone on, they were asking me what was my scripture verses for the day so they could be ready to put them on the screen. And uh, I, I told David Moss, I said, David, today is the abomination of desolation. And he looked at me and he said, well, I just can't wait <laughs> with as much sarcasm as he could muster. And uh, and he said, come back and ask me afterwards. And uh, but today is the abomination of desolation. We come to this section and it may be a new phrase or a new term to you, or maybe there's confusion around it. I got to tell you, I've been in this text for two weeks. I've been immersed in the second coming of Christ and what will happen in the end times and eschatology and all of these things. And for two weeks, I have just been at times drowning in this because the reality is, and we'll see this as we go through the next couple of weeks, the reality is we can't drain the, the bottom of this. Because God doesn't give us all of it. If you're looking today or the next week to come in and figure out how all of the timeline works and chart it all out, let me just go ahead and tell you, you'll be disappointed because I'm not going to do that. I'll give you some details. I'm going to, I'm going to really kind of dive deep and it's going to be thick and heavy at times. But in the end, I'm going to have to come to the place where I, I will say, this is what I believe but ultimately, I can't be dogmatic because God didn't deem it necessary for us to know everything in detail. We come this morning. This is I'm, I'm so humbled and I'm, I'm so appreciative of the word of God because preaching through a book of the Bible, I probably if I wasn't doing this, I probably would avoid this. But for your sake and my sake and for God's glory, as we preach through verse by verse. Through books of the Bible, we come to things that otherwise we wouldn't address. Isn't that good? And the Word of God is good. Um, before I read, I just want to set the context or just give you a picture, um, if you will. Um, September 11th, 2001, there were people that got on a plane that morning. And they got on the plane, and at, before they took off, they were... Answering emails, texting back and forth. Was texting even around back in 2001? They were emailing or calling or listening to voicemails. They maybe had their laptops open and they were working on things for their, their company or their business. At some point, the, the airline or the, the pilot came across and said uh, to turn everything off and fasten your seatbelts. And they got ready for takeoff. And they took off and they got up to 
the cruising altitude and, and the flight attendants began to come around and ask what they would have to drink or if they would like this or that. And shortly after that is when those men hijacked those planes and crashed them into those buildings. On the other side of that, there were people um, in restaurants in the World Trade Center at their desks in the Pentagon. They were working away and they were not expecting that day to look up and see planes coming at them through the window. This morning, when we come to this text, when we come to this subject, some of us, even though we have sat in church services for years, and certainly there will be many who will be outside the walls of our churches who will come to the end of time. And they will see the Lord Jesus come back and they and some of us will be ill prepared or unprepared. They will simply be going about their lives, doing business as usual when everything comes to an end. But I want to tell you this morning as your pastor, it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to be unprepared because Jesus here in his Grace in his mercy, in his shepherd's heart, he tells us these things beforehand. Let's look at the text together this morning. In verse 14 of Mark chapter 13. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or look, there he is. Do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would take this difficult subject and God, that you would teach us, that you would enlighten us. God, that you would open the eyes and the ears of our minds and God, that we would be able to comprehend as people who have been redeemed. And God, that we would take these things seriously. God, I pray also that if there are those here today who are outside of redemption, God, that today that you would call them to yourself. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. There is in this text, I want to give you just a few things. There is, first of all, the coming tribulation. The coming tribulation in this text is twofold. He's talking about two different things, and this is what makes this passage confusing. Because he's talking about really three different things. He's talking to the disciples 
about a future event in the not so distant future. And to do that, he points backwards to an event that's already happened so that he can point all the way forward to the ultimate future event, the end of the age. That's what makes this thing confusing, because we're constantly in and out of this thing. We have to determine and distinguish which part he's actually talking about. Is he talking to the disciples about the destruction of the temple by the Romans? Is he looking backwards to the already abomination of desolation that has already been a partial fulfillment of this? Or is he at times, where is he looking all the way forward to his second coming? Well, the first part of this is twofold. The first part the destruction of the temple The temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. We know this because we're now on the backside of this. We can look back in the year 70 A.D. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. We know that this is what he's talking about here, because if you go back into the previous verses in chapter 13, he's come out of the temple. Some of his disciples said, Jesus, look at these buildings, look at the massive stones. And Jesus said to them, You see these stones, not one of them will be left upon the other. And then they're left to ask the question that you and I would ask, when will these things be? And it's still in this conversation that he now answers with the abomination of desolation. So we know here he's talking about the destruction of this Jerusalem temple that he's just walked out of. He warns them about the future destruction of the temple by first looking backward. He looks backward to the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. This is a reference to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And in 11 and in 12, he's looking backwards to this partial fulfillment of this prophecy. Daniel prophesied this, that there would be the abomination of desolation. You say, what, what does that even mean? Let's take a time out. And what does that mean? Abomination of desolation. Let's break down the words. If something is an abomination, it is abominable, it's despicable, it's disgusting. It is so shocking that it leads to desolation, something becoming desolate. We saw this happen back in 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes, a Seleucid king, came into the temple. He recaptured the Jews and he wanted to not just capture them, but he wanted to humiliate them. And so he goes into the temple and he commands that an altar be constructed not to the worship of their God, the one true God of Israel. But he commands that an altar be built to Zeus. And it's upon this altar that he erects an image reflecting himself. Even He goes into the temple and he builds this altar and then he forbids sacrifice in the Hebrew faith. Instead, what he does is he says there will still be sacrifice. It will be on this altar to Zeus, but it will not be the traditional, according to your laws, sacrificial system. You will sacrifice swine and other unclean animals. This was detestable to the Jews. An altar to a pagan god in the temple, sacrificing swine and other unclean animals upon it. Not to the one true and living God, but to this pagan god. He outlawed the Sabbath. He outlawed circumcision. He wanted to just humiliate them. And this was so abominable to them that in that day they left. They left the temple desolate. 
One writer said Jews fled out of Jerusalem like swimmers leaving a sinking ship. They were going in all different directions by the droves. They left. This is a partial fulfillment of this. Jesus uses this familiar phrase to give them a picture of how it would be when Rome destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. He looks backwards and he says, you remember this in history. You've heard the stories of this in history. This is similar to what it will be when Rome one day, not too long from now, destroys this temple. It will not leave one stone upon the other. So why would Jesus do this? Because Jesus warns them and he wants them to be ready. Jesus is in the last week of his life. Jesus is about to be arrested. He's about to be beaten and crucified. He's about to go into the tomb. He will come out of the tomb and he will leave. He will ascend back to be with his father. And he knows that he's doing this. And so he wants them to be ready. He doesn't want them to get to the year 70 A.D. or 67 all the way up through 70 A.D. and go through this and just lay the whole thing down. He tells them in advance what is going to happen so that they will be ready. It's going to be a horrible time. Verses 14 through 18, notice the urgency. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. In other words, don't go back for anything. There's no time for that. Just get out. Just flee. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, exclamation mark. What he's saying is this would be a pitiful, horrendous time for a woman who is pregnant or nursing. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter, he says. Jesus here is warning them and he wants them to be ready and he tells them of the horrendous time and he shows them the urgency. But the second part of this is then he goes beyond this coming destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And he goes all the way to the end of the age, to the Great Tribulation. And he does this in verse 19. Look at verse 19. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Let me ask you, has there ever been anything up to that point Worse in human history than the destruction of the temple. Yeah. Remember Noah? Remember the great flood where God killed everybody on the planet except for eight people? So we know that when he says here, there has never been anything like this and there will never be anything like this in the future. He's not talking about the Roman destruction of the temple. Instead, Jesus makes a leap here. He jumps and he jumps all the way to the end of the age. He's saying the great tribulation that is coming will be worse than anything. The abomination of desolation will ultimately be fulfilled with not Antiochus Epiphanes, not Caesar. It will be fulfilled by the Antichrist. The great tribulation will be ushered in by the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians, we, we know this, we see this here. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12, hang with me. Let no one deceive you in any way, 
Speaking of this, this great tribulation to come for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness. It's another name for the Antichrist. Unless the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, he won't he won't tolerate the worship of anyone else. He will demand he will demand. Worship for Satan. He exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple, the temple of God, sitting where he ought not to be. Proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed. whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, some believe this is where I'll get into some details and please pay attention. Don't check out here. Because you'll 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 get lost if you do. Some believe that this great tribulation will be a literal seven year period. Others believe that it's un, it's an unspecified amount of time. The reality is the amount of time is apparently not that important because God has not been exactly explicit. What is important is that it will be an unprecedented time of seemingly unrestrained evil initiated by the appearance of the Antichrist. Verse 19 again, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. In what days? When you go back up to verse 14, it's in the days when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be. It's in those days the Antichrist will be revealed. The Antichrist will be a real person. This is not just some figment of, of imagination. This is not just some spirit in the world. This is not just some movement. This is a real, literal person that will come into history. He's also known as, you've already heard me say, the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians and also the beast in Revelation 13. Russell Moore, let me, I couldn't say it any better than what Russell Moore has said it in uh, a theology for the church in, in his section on this. Let me just read. It's a lengthy read, but hang with me. The Antichrist is one more example of the satanic aping of God's redemptive purposes. Just as God saves the world through a spirit anointed human Messiah, the God of this age unveils a human ruler anointed with his spirit just as Jesus spirit, Jesus spirit poured out on his disciples is the guarantee of his future appearance. The spirit of Antichrist at work now in the world guarantees his eventual coming. Just as Jesus is typified in the millennia before his coming by other anointed ones who point to his coming rule. Many Antichrists appear throughout the ages, all pointing to the one who is to come. Just as Jesus 
just as the Messiah is announced by the prophet of God as the one worthy of worship, the counter Messiah, the Antichrist, raises up a false prophet to promote the worship of the beast. The Messiah, Jesus, refuses to conquer the world's kingdoms through the worship of Satan or through the sword. The counter Messiah is given his kingdoms by Satan and rules them through bloodshed. The Messiah counts worship of God as more important than food. See this in his temptings in the wilderness. He refused to turn the stones into bread. The Messiah counts the worship of God even more important than food. But the counter Messiah demands worship of his power and enforces it through controlling access to bread. The Messiah speaks liberating truth while the counter Messiah deceives through signs and wonders. The Messiah builds a holy temple, his church, of which he is the cornerstone, while the counter Messiah stands in this temple, falsely proclaiming himself as God. As Jesus is presented as the final prophet, priest and king, this Antichrist claims prophetic authority and claims dominion over both the church and the state. This Antichrist is not going to be a pleasant person. There have been all sorts of speculation through the years. Adolf Hitler and all sorts of other people, even Ronald Reagan. What's, was it Ronald Wilson Reagan? People, people said that because there were six letters in, in each name, it was the mark of the beast and that Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist. And the reality is that when this person comes, you won't have to be told. You won't have to guess. It would be obvious. So what are we to make of this? How should we Christians feel as the day approaches? This great tribulation that will be ushered in by the appearance of the Antichrist. How are we to respond? This is where I want you to walk away remembering everything. Number one, we should approach this day through the lenses of God's sovereign mercy. God's sovereign mercy in verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. We see here the heart of our God. What makes the elect the elect? You cannot deny this teaching. It's there. Some would say. I, I don't understand people arguing over this. The Bible doesn't address this. The Bible does address it. It addresses it in multiple places. Here is simply one of them. It says, God, for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, shortened the days. We can't deny it. We can't ignore it. The Bible teaches this. What makes the elect, people get hung up on it, but what makes the elect, the elect, is not something elite within themselves. It is not something about them. It is not their intellect or their ability or their likability, or anything else. They're not the elect because God sees in them something that He just has to have. They are only the recipients of God's gracious and undeserved call and protection. That's it. It's the ESV footnote. That's what it says. That's, that's where I find myself. That's what motivates my worship. Because it wasn't anything that I did. It wasn't anything that I figured out. 
I'm blessed to have grown up in the family that I did where I heard the gospel. I was taught scripture. I looked at my grandfather today and he's the most godly man I will ever be around. Blessed. But nowhere, nowhere before I was conceived did I ever put in my order. It's the grace of God. When I was eight years old, it wasn't as if I finally came to the end of reading and researching and studying and said, you know what? I figured this thing out. I'm going to pray that Christ would come in and save my life. When I was eight years old, it was sudden to me. It was, it was, a, it was an awareness that I was a sinner. That I needed a Savior. God called me to Himself. He woke me from the slumber of death. And I, the only option that made sense was for me to repent and believe. What makes the elect the elect is the gracious and undeserved call and protection of God. Don't get hung up on election and predestination and all of that. Instead, see the heart of God. The fact that he chooses to save anybody is undeserved generosity. Let alone that here in this verse, he shortens the tribulation for their sake. It's just grace upon grace. Our Father's heart overflows with mercy, not condemnation. There are those that get caught up on this doctrine of election and say, but how could God do that? That's unfair for him to do that. Really? What's unfair is for any of us to be saved. What is gracious and merciful, though, is that God would not destroy me in my sin. But that he would look on me with love. And he would send his son. The lesson, Christian, for the meantime, we look to this great tribulation. And we look at it through the lenses of God's sovereign mercy. Christian, in the meantime, there, we will experience many, many, many different little tribulations on the way to the great tribulation. We may not be here for the great tribulation. We may be, but we may not be. So the lesson here is not that God is only sovereignly merciful in the great tribulation and shortening of those days. But that all the way through, God is sovereignly merciful. The point of contention among many believers has to do with the timing of the rapture. Will it happen before the tribulation or after? I may shock some of you, but personally, I believe it will be after. I don't believe that God will rapture us out. Now, we can, dis- we can disagree on that. That's not, a, that's not a primary point of doctrine. It's a secondary issue. You can believe that God will rapture the church out and then the tribulation will come in. And that's fine. We can get along. And you can apologize to me when we're going through it. (laughs) The reality is we can't say with any authority that it's going to happen here or there. That's not the point. The point is that God wants us to be ready. He wants us to be watchful and looking. 
Here in verse 20, the Lord's heart moves him to deliver them out of the tribulation. We'll face many little tribulations before we endure the great one. We should draw strength from knowing that God, his character is one, that in his sovereign mercy will deliver us out of most of those little tribulations. There will be things that we will endure and we will have to go through and God will leave us in so many of those. But if the, the switch could be flipped and we could see all of the tribulations that we could have and should have gone through, that God spared us through, that he delivered us from and out of, we would be amazed. We would stand back and be speechless, silent in the worship of our God. The heart of our God is one to deliver us and most of the tribulations we will be faced with his sovereign mercy will deliver us out of those. But there will also be some that we will go through. And this leads us to the second point I want you to see. We must approach the tribulation, the great tribulation, through the lens of God's sovereign protection. Verses 21 and 22. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it. What he's talking about here is in the midst of the tribulation. Some saying, there he comes. He's coming back. The Messiah is here. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, that's so important, if possible, the elect. We see we must look at this through the lens of God's sovereign protection. Even though they are told that God will cut it short, they are still warned of what to watch for. Isn't that interesting? They're told here, if it weren't for the mercy of God, for the sake of the elect, him cutting it short, nobody would be saved. And even though they're told that, they're still told, be on the alert. Be watchful. Because there will come many false Christs and false prophets to deceive, if possible, even the elect. We see in this the sovereign protection of our God. To lead astray, if possible, the elect. The obvious point is that it's not possible. It is impossible to lead the elect astray. It may seem like at times that it is, that, that you're about to be led astray, that you're, you've been abandoned. God has left you. He's, he doesn't care about you anymore. He has, he has led you astray. And now you find yourself alone. And it may seem that way at times, but the reality is it's not. If you are one of his, he will keep all the powers of hell from snatching you from his hand. Don't miss that. That is so important. If you are one of his, he will keep all the powers of hell from snatching you from his hand. They can't touch you. You're one of his. John 17, 11 through 15, Jesus praying to the father. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Child of God, if you are a child of God, 
you can rest assured that along the way to the great tribulation, you and I will face many small tribulations. And sometimes God will deliver us out of those tribulations. But other times we can rest assured that God will deliver us through those tribulations. God will walk through it with us. That he will not leave us or forsake us. That he will not ever let go of us. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Read Romans 8. The last section of Romans 8. And just marvel at the, what I was listed there that cannot separate you from your God. And the good news is that as a child of God, as a true chosen child of God, a believer, a Christian, a saint of God. Sometimes God will deliver you out of the tribulation. Sometimes he will deliver you through the tribulation. But rest assured, Christian, draw strength from the fact that he will always deliver you. The last point that I want you to see this morning is this. That as we approach the great tribulation, we must see it through the sovereign mercy of our God, the sovereign protection of our God. But then lastly... We must approach it through our solemn responsibility. Our solemn responsibility. Verse 23, he says, until then, be on guard. Be on guard, he says, for I've told you all these things before they will happen. If the restaurant knows the exact date and time when the health inspector will arrive, Will things be ready in the kitchen? Absolutely. If you've worked in a restaurant, you know this. It's dreaded when all of a sudden you'd see his car pull up in the parking lot. He would open the door and there was a mad dash. Get rid of that raw chicken. Spray some bleach. But if you knew when he was coming, you'd be ready. If the children know exactly when the parents will come home, will their rooms be ready? Yes. If we knew exactly the day as believers, if we knew exactly the day and the hour and the minute when Jesus would come again, would we be ready? You better believe it. Our churches would be full. We would not have one service. We would have multiple services because the world would flood into the church. And they would brush off their hypocrisy and they would come and be ready. And I say to you, church, that it ought not be. It should not take us knowing the exact date and time of when our Lord will return for us to then be motivated to be ready. Out of the grace that we have received in the sovereign mercy of our God and the sovereign protection of our God, we should stay ready. We should be on guard. We should always be faithful, always working while it is day. And then when he shows up, we will hear those words Well done, good and faithful servant. You see, this doesn't feel very much like a Christmas sermon. So I came to this. 
We started walking through Mark verse by verse a long time ago. Nobody's more aware of that than I am, okay? But as we came to the Christmas season and we came, I saw that it was going to hit the 13th chapter and I started reading about the abomination of desolation. Lord, really? God, really? And everything in me wanted to say, let's take a break and we'll do a mini-series. And then we'll come back to Mark after Christmas. But the more I looked at it, the more I realized that this is the message of Christmas. That just as those saints of the Old Testament by faith looked forward to the one day when the Messiah would come in the first place. The Advent, the Incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. And they longed for that day. The message of Christmas for us today who are on this side of Emmanuel. The message for us is that we would also look with anticipation, anxiously longing for the day when he will come again. Amen. That is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we look at these events that are coming, God, that you would. Lord, show us your truth, Lord. Help us not to be lazy. Help us to do the work and God investigate and study and expand our understanding with what you have given us. Going to your word and saying, I will not skip over that because that's hard. God, that you would lead us, God, to to dive in and to understand as much as we possibly are supposed to know. But God, I also pray, Lord, that you would keep us from getting hung up on the things that are peripheral. Lord, that we would not argue over the timing and want to chart all this out. God, that instead that it would serve its purpose in knowing that human history is not out of control, but you are in control. You're in the driver's seat the entire time and you are leading this thing to your appointed end. And there's going to come a day when while there will be the appearance of the Antichrist and the great tribulation coming on God, we know that he does not win. That Satan does not win. The Bible says that he will be destroyed by the breath of your mouth. Just that little. And he will be gone. God, I pray that we would hold on to that and hope not in anything else that we would hope in you and you alone. God, that we would not get discouraged and beat down by what's going on in the world around us or what's going on in our own lives. But God, that we would see that you are sovereignly merciful and you are sovereignly protecting us. And God, that because of that, there is nothing that can take us out of your hand. And so we will be diligent and we will be responsible to be faithful and to be ready when you come. God, this morning, I pray in this time of response that for those that are here. God, that. Don't know you as Savior. They're still in their sin. They're on the opposite side of redemption. God, I pray today that you would bring them to life, that they would turn from their sins and trust you as their only hope of salvation. God, for every believer in the room, every saint in the room, God, I pray that you would help them to to look to you with greater fervency. You would draw them to yourself, that we would be a people that fall more deeply in love with you on a daily basis. God, I don't want that to sound uh, tried and emotional. God, I pray that you'd help us to see our need of you. God, I pray that you would do whatever you want to do 
We invite you to move. We beg you to move. We invite you to draw people to yourself so that you and you alone would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.